June is officially PTSD Awareness Month. This is Peak Conversations for Your Peak Health, the official podcast of Peak Behavioral Health Services. And this is the podcast edition of May's Mental Health Highlight with El Paso's PBS program, The El Paso Physician, hosted by Katherine Berg. The human brain is responsible for our cognitive abilities, also our emotions and our behaviors. We know that, but we're going to talk a lot about that this evening. There's everything that we think we feel and we do, and it's all going on up here, but also going on in here. So we have some different emotional states that can be medically detected with some advanced brain imaging technologies that we've been doing for the last six, seven, eight years, but there's more and more happening every day. And in the near future, we will uh, help to understand and better serve those suffering with mental illnesses with a lot of these technologies that are happening now. During this next hour, we have some physicians that are answering your questions and my questions because I have a lot of questions. This program is underwritten by Peak Behavioral Health Services. We also want to say thank you to the El Paso County Medical Society for bringing the show to you each and every month. The El Paso Physician. I'm Catherine Berg. We're talking about mental health. May is Mental Health Month and it matters. I think, I don't know when that became a thing, but I feel like mental health really over the last two decades is something that we're starting to talk about more and really the last decade has been something like, you know what, these are my issues, let's talk about them. We're here to talk about that this evening. We have Dr. Peter Sangra with us and he is the child and adolescent psychiatrist at, again, Peak Behavioral Health Services. And we also have Dr. Harry Silsby who is a vice president of medical services. And I gave a quick decision of what your titles are, but really you have so many things going on. So Dr. Sangra, if you can talk about what encompasses what you do throughout the day? I know that both of you get to have any questions that are thrown your way, but when you're talking specifically about child and adolescent, ad, ad, adolescent, yes, pardon me, adolescent psychiatrist, it's hard to say altogether. <laughs> Didn't even think about doing that out loud before I got here. But what is it that if you can explain to home, to the layman's audience, okay. what does that mean? So, you know, this is usually a time when the family's in transition, a crisis, and, and they need support. So first thing first is explaining to the family what's going on. Right. Because their child just got taken away, and they're in this strange building, sometimes miles away from home, sometimes even from a different state. And it might be the first time that they even left home. And you're um, talking about the immigration situation we have going on right now, correct? Sometimes that too, but okay. more than frequently from different parts of New Mexico, different sometimes Arizona. Um, we had one kid come from California, mm. so like really far away. Mm -hmm. um, so the family themselves and the children find themselves in this predicament with a serious mental illness and maybe thoughts of suicide. Right. So the first thing is just educating the child and letting them know what's going on, the process, mm -hmm. and then inviting the family in, in that conversation, and then getting more information of like, what's going on, what led up to this admission, right. um, and then just helping them guide through the treatment. Um, and we'll talk a little bit also about sometimes when there is not a family member involved, when there is just the individual themselves, and we'll yeah. build up a little bit as we, as we get there as well. Yeah. Um, and with you, I'm just gonna, in my, mentality I'll just kind of stop questions of 18 when you think about adolescence and or child psychiatrists is that about 18 to 21 what age group would that be sure so at peak we can see children from 12 to say 17 okay in my category but gotcha. I have been trained to um, you know five and under okay and five to 12 or whatever yeah. you want yeah 
and there's a lot of issues there too. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Silsby, um, we know each other from different areas, and Dr. Silsby has uh, served in the Army, and there's a lot of PTSD questions that we're going to talk about this evening. And you are the VP for Medical Services, um, but I think you said you were in the Army, did you say 17 years? or seven, You were a flight surgeon for seven years, that's what it was. I was a flight surgeon for nine years. Oh, for and, nine years. And uh, was um, a psychiatrist the rest of the time, but was in administration, and okay. former deputy commander at William Beaumont, and I served 20 years. And you've seen a lot in this time. Well, you were in Vietnam I, as well. And I was. Okay. Um, it's it's almost unfair to say what do you do all day every day because I know it encompasses a lot but if you were for the sake for this show uh, this evening how would you describe to the audience at home what it is that you specialize in now well you know um, Peter of course has had special training in, in uh, child psychiatry and is really wonderful with the kids uh, I didn't train in child psychiatry, but I have special training in chemical dependence. And um, what I do now is primarily treat adults. And what the adults we're seeing now, a lot of them have co-occurring disorders. So they may have a psychiatric disorder, or depression, a bipolar disorder, or even schizophrenia. But probably now about 50% of them have a co-occurring chemical dependency disorder. Mm. So we do a lot of detoxification, uh, we do a lot of uh, chemical dependency uh, related things. Uh, it's uh, interesting that uh, of course the milieu and the family is always important, but adults, if they don't want us to talk to the family, we can't exactly. we can't do that right. so we try to set up a fam with our therapist tries to set up a family session with these people but if they don't want to have it they they don't have to and a lot of them have been alienated from their family for years mm -hmm. and so they have very little support system we see quite a number of people that are homeless right and and so that makes our job even more difficult to try to get them into a place where they're safe mm -hmm. and free from drugs and so forth and so on. And I'd like to expand on that as well because when we talk about mental health in general, it's not something that just goes away on its own. And I think those that are not in the world of mental health just think, oh, well, it'll go away with time. Time heals everything. So I do want to very much talk about that and how what I cued in on what you were talking about is like now there's about 50% of this population that you're speaking around about that are chemically dependent on something. And unfortunately, I feel like that's easier and easier to have access to chemical dependence situations. So. And so um, I wanna talk about that as we're going forward too. I wanna stop for just a moment because I failed to do this in the beginning. Um, but you will notice to, today is May 20th and we're here without our masks on. It is the first time in 15 months that that's the case. Mm -hmm. But the reason I want to say that out loud is that all three of us are vaccinated, both vaccines and have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated. I have at least for um, um, over the month and you all have for quite mm -hmm. some other time. We are six feet apart um, and it matters. Why does it matter? Because there are still uh, certain guidelines in place and if you are not vaccinated yet it is absolutely best to keep your mask on and also those who are not vaccinated keep the mask on of that person that you're speaking with so um, that's just due yeah. diligence because this is a medical show and I needed to go there really quick. <laughs> um, 
I would like to, Dr. Sangra, if we can talk about, so you all are specific doctors in your specific areas, but peak behavioral health services, I'd like to talk about what that encompasses. Okay. So what is peak behavioral health services and what all do you do there? Again, okay. we, we have, you know, it would be five days if we okay. really said it all, but you know what I mean. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, so we serve like the greater region of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, um, even, um, the immigration populations that come in. Um, so we have inpatient, so mm -hmm. where someone comes in, they stay with us for a certain number of days and they get treated um, and they get back home. Um, and we have a couple of outpatient services. So we have a thing that's called partial hospitaliza hospitalization. So they spend their time at home, but mm -hmm. they come during the day for programs. Um, so we have that for children and we have that for adults. Um, and the and the adult campus is in Las Cruces. Mm -hmm. um, and we just started up a new program, which is called the ACT team. And that stands for Assertive Community Treatment. And that's for individuals that require just a little bit more attention, a little bit more care, need someone to be kind of on them for the medication, maybe housing, food issues, monetary issues, um, so they don't fall through the cracks and they mm -hmm. don't become homeless. Right. Um, so we have that um, service just kind of newly set up, I think as of December. Um, nice, so when, when, I, when you're talking about the ACT team, I'm thinking that's for all ages or that's really more adult focused at it's this point? It's more for adult focused okay. right now. That yeah. makes sense to me, that makes sense to me. Okay, I'd like to talk about also uh, Dr. Silsby. The, as, as Dr. Sangra is talking about the population that we're treating, at your place, are you treating everyone that comes through your doors? Are there specializations? I, I talked a little bit about PTSD, and again, that we are Fort Bliss town. We are a military area. So what population do you treat? Unless I'm just throwing that all out there and making it too <laughs> well, big. And if I am, I, I'm in respect of that, and you can just... Yeah, Catherine, that's pretty big. Actually, we... we treat anybody that needs treatment okay. and especially anybody that, that walks into our door and they meet criteria. They have to meet criteria. So talk about that if you don't mind. What, what well, criteria do they have to meet? Certainly. Um, usually they have to be a threat to themselves or others and have, or, or have a psychotic condition. We sometimes get a lot of uh, walking worried and uh, the walking worried don't meet the criteria and but maybe need some counseling. So we send them to our partial program. Uh, or we try to set them up with local counselors in the community. So I love the term, the walking worried. And Dr. Sangra, you were gonna say something, uh, which makes me think you're gonna expand on that because I wanted some expansion on that immediately. Was that something you were gonna talk about? Well, well the walking worry doesn't mean that you meet criteria need to be admitted because there's a lot of worry and right. generally people walk around with anxiety. You technically can't, get rid of anxiety. You need a little bit of anxiety mm -hmm. to motivate you to kind of get you through the day. So our goal is not to eliminate anxiety, and but our goal is to speak life into people so they can actually carry on. I would very much like to expand on that. Okay. Um, when we talk about anxiety, I think it's almost an overused word. But there are also people that have true physiological panic attacks. Right. Um, so maybe we can separate, or, or maybe however you'd like to use the definition of separating anxiety, which is walking worry, which I, I, I respect. I mean, don't we all have that to a point? Mm -hmm. But there are people that we all know in our lives that really, really take 
the level of anxiety and it's extended and extended until panic sets in and then where you're just overwhelmed with certain thoughts. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit. And I know that Dr. Silsby was talking about criteria, but how can these people find help? Where would they go first? Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes okay. sense. Okay. And, and so generally what you want to do when that happens, and um, definitely you want to have help with a medical professional, whether it's a pediatrician or your general practitioner, um, therapy is usually the first go-to. Um, you want to start off with therapy. Mm -hmm. And hopefully with that, things can get better. Um, so with therapy, um, maybe a support group, some friends, um, a church group, a small community mm -hmm. to kind of help you. And if it doesn't get better, then there's next stage to kind of carry on that treatment. Um, so that's kind of where you start. Okay. And that's a nice transition, Dr. Silsby, if we can talk about we are now just, as I described why we're not wearing masks, we are just now starting to open up again. Yeah. So the past year, year and a half, I want to say, people who have had issues and have not been able to speak with friends face-to-face, -face, have not been able to do exactly what mm -hmm. you're talking about. Dr. Silsby, if you can maybe highlight the extra layer, the ancillary portions of what COVID-19 and how our lives have changed over the last year and a half with people who have already had existing mental conditions anyway. You know, I think we've seen our um, census go up, our population go up. People are worried about it. Uh, families are worried about it. And I think uh, that it, it creates uh, a, a panic, if you will, on, on its own. Mm -hmm. Technically, I, I think the etiology of uh, panic disorder, of when it gets to be a disorder, and I'm not talking about just natural anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, the etiology is about the same as it is for PTSD. Uh, for some reason, person triggers a fight or flight response. Right. And bang, all of a sudden, uh, they're having a panic. They're thinking they're having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. if somebody would throw alligators in here, we'd all have a panic attack. Right. But nobody's doing that. Right. And these people don't have alligators in their room or rattlesnakes, uh, but they have a panic. Mm -hmm. And they do think they're having a heart attack. And, and that is, uh, you know, can be treated. Right. Bingo. And I, I love that you said that. I think that's what people at home need to hear. It can be treated. So sometimes, at least in my head, I feel like with whatever the situation is, if I can logically wrap my head around what's happening, then I feel like emotionally I can breathe a little bit. So if there is a way to physiologically explain what and why, and the why is the big one, and I don't expect you to answer the why, but why is it that some people really go into full-blown panic attacks, sweating, not being able to breathe, getting nauseous, almost fainting, just, you know, with all intense, just freaking out? Why is it that some people get to that stage and other people are just kind of, you know, just breathe through it? Those aren't alligators. Those are just rocks that I need to walk through, and it's fine. Well, you know, uh, again, it's a matter of reducing uh, the arousal state that the body gets into with these stimulatory neuro neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. And there's several ways to do that. There's relaxation, there's talking about it, there's so forth. You can actually have people, and I've done this before, people come in with a panic and said, I'm having a heart attack, I'm really having, you know, a terrible panic. Mm -hmm. said, so, well, what would you think if you were having a heart attack? How would you see yourself? Right. Well, I would see myself in an emergency room on a gurney 
with a lot of tubes and a lot of guys in white coats standing around me. I said, okay, now get up and jog in place. And how does this contradict what your hmm. mental image is of having a heart attack? And they get up and jog in place. They say, well, I'm not having a heart attack. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Gracie, there is slide number 15 that I'd like you to pull up when you get a chance. Um, and I'd like to kind of walk ourselves through this. So in a moment, doctors, you'll see this on the screen here. But I was uh, asking that question of this, the, the sender and the receiver. I mean, there is the brain sending messages, your body's receiving it one way, et cetera. But you were talking earlier about message receptors. Um, how is it, and, and this is the stuff that fascinates me because I don't understand why one person is able to receive a message one way and another person receives it another way and how it physiologically affects their system. So slide 15, as people are looking at it up on the air, who would like to take explaining that one? Well, Dr. that's, Sylvia, we'll that's, that's my you. slide. Oh, well, there you go. It. Okay. So um, basically, you know, I don't know that we need to go into a course in neuroanatomy. Right. But I'm going to try to simplify it, and I tried to uh, a few minutes ago with you. Mm -hmm. uh, I and, love the pre-show talks. And, and, I feel like we should record all the pre-show And you didn't think it was talks. simplified enough, but let's see if maybe <laughs> Peter can help us. But basically... Brain cells communicate with each other electrically. And so uh, electrical impulse will travel along a, a brain cell, along a neuron, until it gets to this junction up there you see that says synaptic cleft. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. can't cross that. And so um, there are neurotransmitters. Some of them are stimulatory. Some of them are inhibitory. So the parent cell releases the neurotransmitter and it goes out into that cleft. Now there's some other enzymes in there that try to destroy them, but basically they go over and they bind in receptor sites on the receptor neuron mm -hmm. and then they send the electrical impulse on its way. So that's why it's important when you mm -hmm. look at, at psychiatric illness I, I sometimes simplify psychiatric illness by saying, you know, it's a disease of disruption of neurotransmitters, whether they're but stimulatory. But that makes perfect sense. It's yeah. a disruption of yeah, neurotransmitters. Of right. whether, whether they're stimulatory or inhibitory. So, Dr. Sangra, uh, and, and you were going to say something. I was, yeah, yes, I was going to add, just to help you understand why some people do have more panic attacks than other people, and why is that? It's if, if you think of a dirt road and a pathway, mm -hmm. um, and we're going to compare this to the neurons, if, if you travel down the pathway just a couple of times, well, it's easy to get lost. You're not going to use it as much. But if you use it quite frequently, and then you start kind of laying down some cobstones and a nice pathway, clear out the brush, put some lights, well, then it's a little easier to get to, right? Right, right. So if you keep practicing a certain kind of behavior, whether it's, um, appropriate or not appropriate, mm -hmm. whether if it's a fear response or freeze response or flight response, where you're telling the brain to kind of lay down that pathway. And so it's if the individual keeps laying down that pathway and keeps repeating that response, it becomes easier for that pa patient or person to go down that kind of response that you're talking about versus the other way, exactly. which is a challenge. So I'd like to talk about I'd like to talk about medications, mm -hmm. but I really, really would like to combine them with talk therapy.
Okay. And when I say talk therapy, the way I'm reading what you're saying is that there's a way to try to train yourself. Yes. When you, when you have found that you are a person that tends to have panic disorder, meaning mm -hmm. I'm just not anxious. I mean, I, I go full on into panic attacks yeah. if you're that person. There are tools that you can use just mentally, yes. and there's also medications. Yes. Again, I feel like with everything today, there, it's such a big bucket. So let's start first with medications, with what we were talking about with slide 15, when you're talking about this, the disruptors okay. and some medications that can help with um, either stimulatory or receptive issues and helping that. Let's start there. And don't let me forget to go back to talk therapy. You know, both okay. of you. Well, yes. and let so me just uh, segue into that just a bit before okay. we start, because okay. statistically, the best outcome is with both. Okay. It's a combination of, mm -hmm. of pharmacological therapy along with the talk therapies. And, and nowadays, that's pretty much the uh, reality therapies, the cognitive uh, therapies, mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy. So those seem to work the best. And you, you sort of you can't do one without the other. Right. Right. And then the reason why that is, is because the medications kind of work on the deeper inner structure of the brain that mm -hmm. kind of tone down those responses. Mm -hmm. And the talk therapy allow the uh, the brain neurons get to like the frontal lobe, mm -hmm. uh, where that is called the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. Is That's where they need to get to in order to actually kind of stop those kind of really bad responses that mm -hmm. are kind of taken away from the person's kind of quality of life. So it's like the shock response that just... And, and if you don't mind, Gracie, slide number 16, if you can get that at the ready, because um, we're, we're kind of talking about that area. So my apologies, continue. Sometimes, oh, she's good. It's <laughs> yeah. right there. Boom. Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it's a lot of it is trying to reach the outer layers of the cortex. And that's kind of where your logic and your planning, mm -hmm. kind of like the, if you imagine like an executive assistant for you. Right. And someone that has everything ready for you, has your time, has your coffee, has your gas in your car, has your, like has your, has your coat pressed out the door, right. has your makeup ready, has everything laid out for you. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Silsby has that every morning. Do you really, Dr. Silsby? <laughs> we need to talk. Um, but that, that's a great but. way of looking at it because you have at your access then, at your beck and call, yeah. these things that you're talking about. This is my way of getting ready for my day. Yes. Whatever way that would be. Um, and with what we got on the screen, screen right now, it's the neurotransmitters. And I like to go a little bit into this because as questions start coming in, it's nice to have gone through these already. So we're talking about stimulatory and then inhibitory um, issues. And if we can just, just describe what we're talking about here, and then we can take it further after that. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Great. Dr. Sangro, should I give that to you or should I give that to oh, Dr. So oh, we'll that's right. Dr. These are your slides. Go. It's his slides. My apologies. These that's are doctors. I can these jump are my slides. So Dr. Silsby, <laughs> but we're gonna get back to you that know, point. I'm Let's sure. talk about the neurotransmitters. Well, basically, you know, they're stimulatory or, or inhibitory. Right, right. And so a lot of uh, psychiatric disease can uh, theoretically be explained by absence or abundance of one or the other. So if a person becomes psychotic, that means they can't interpret the reality and they're hearing voices and seeing things. Why the theory is there's an old dopamine hypothesis that mm -hmm. there's too much uh, dopamine in the brain. Right. Some of the drugs that we have called antipsychotics 
go in and they block that. Um, on the other hand, if you don't have enough um, serotonin, mm -hmm. which is responsible for well-being and, and for sleep and sex drive and so many other things, then you become depressed. Right. And we have drugs that will go in and call serotonin reuptake inhibitors and actually, go back to, going back to the other slide, will block the reuptake. Mm -hmm. Once the parent cell releases the neurotransmitter into that synaptic cleft, then it's smart enough to say, shoot, I don't want to get rid of all this stuff, right, so exactly. I'm going to suck some of it back up. Mm -hmm. And there's something called a reuptake pump. And so what will happen is, is that the serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs will go in and they'll block that pump. Thereby, you have a greater buildup of serotonin in the synapse. And now, that's pretty complicated. And if we go back to slide 15 for but, a second. No, it's, it, but uh, the way that you're describing it makes such sense to me. So my question automatically as a layman, a layperson would be, okay, there is some help with medication. How does one's body know? How does one's brain know? I get that the medication is there. It's got a very specific purpose, just like with every medication we take for different things in the body. I just feel like the brain is, it's, it's an, its own creature in and of itself. Because then behaviors come in. And it's not like behavioral that, you know, eat your Wheaties and, and make sure you have more vegetables and exercise. These are things that I feel like you can't put your arms around the technical aspect of it, the logical aspect of it. How can you stop yourself from thinking something? Does that make sense? I'm, I, know, I know what I'm trying to ask. I'm just not articulating it right. How can you get yourself from stop the psychotic issues that we're, that we're speaking well, about? Well, let, let me just get back to what you were saying a little bit before. Mm -hmm. Because I think as a psychiatrist or, or any physician, you have to listen to your patient. And your patient very frequently will tell you what works and what won't work. And let me give you an example of that. Okay. We, we see there's, there's two types of depression. One type is standard depression. That's where you don't have enough serotonin. And you treat that with an antidepressant. The other type is bipolar two depression, which looks exactly the same. But you need to treat that with mood stabilizers because if you treat it, with an antidepressant, it sometimes destabilizes. So I have a number of patients who will come in, look depressed, and they, I say, what have you been on? Well, I've been on Prozac, or I've, I've been on, uh, you know, Lexapro, and I say, well, how did that work? Well, it didn't work at all. Mm. So mm -hmm. that sort of makes the diagnosis. That was it, my next question. How is the diagnosis? So really, it's listening to the patients. And then put them on a drug and see how it works. Right. Right. And if it's not working, then you, you try something else. And, uh, said, right. and, and that's, yeah, with so many things, too. Um, I don't want to get into the whole drug as we could. Oh, my gosh, that's another four or five hours of getting into all the medications. Um, Dr. Sangra, I would like to kind of switch our focus for a moment okay. to pediatrics, adolescents. Um, and it just if you watch movies, it'd be like, oh, so-and-so happened to that person when they were, and you said below five years of age, or between five years and 10 years of age, 10 years and, mm -hmm. and 15 years of age. My question is, <laughs> how do different brains process different things that have happened to them? And let's just say, let's take 10 children under the age of five, 
and throw a case study out there, throw a story out there. I know we talked a lot before the show, and I almost feel like we shouldn't have because now I feel like those stories are all out there. Um, but how does one individual carry on through their life in a different way than another individual would, okay. even if the exact same things happened to them okay. when they were of that age? And okay. I, I know it's a loaded question, That's fine. but it's curious. So, you know, um, there's, a, there's a scientific word we call pruning. And it's kind of like if you have a, a rosemary bush or some kind of bush and you kind of cut it, the brain does that too as it learns. And so when you're that young and I have young children, mm -hmm. um, they really learn through parents and role modeling. So they're watching, they're listening, they're, trying to, they're seeing how the parents react and how they react to them, whether it's language through um, physical touch Mm. Or, or anything like that. So they're always constantly learning. So now you, know, you have that individual that's just soaking everything up and learning from the environment, looking, learning from the parents, um, even learning language from the parents. And, and if that individual has a good parenting, good solid house, kind of like that nurtures that, mm -hmm. then chances are they'll be able to handle anxiety a lot better. Right. Right? And so anxiety in kids that looks like, well, they have a stomach ache, they mm -hmm. got a headache. Mm. That's what it presents, like mostly somatic complaints, that's what they call it, like body aches and stuff like that. Mm. So because children have a hard time Explain. telling you, yeah, explaining you, like, right. so a child won't tell you that they're depressed because they don't know what depression feels like, right? right? Exactly. And they don't know how to kind of intellectualize or, and kind of explain it of how anxiety looks like. Right. So if you have a child that's kind of, I like to say kind of like a family system that's stressed, there's lots of issues. Maybe a parent has died from COVID. Mm -hmm. I've had that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the parents are fighting. There's a potential divorce going on. There's alcohol in the home. That, that children's going to operate at a different level. Right. right? They're going to have some anxiety already from just like what Dr. Silsby, the um, stimulatory, you know, um, neurotransmitters, a little heightened, mm -hmm. and that impacts the brain and how it's formed. So here's a question when I'm listening to that, and uh, the word normal, which again, doesn't have a definition either. So when you're looking at someone young, their normal is what's happening in their home. Absolutely, yeah. And so when I say that, as they grow up and they realize, oh, well, my home, now that they're seven, eight, nine years mm -hmm. old, my home's a lot different than that home or this home or the other home. Mm -hmm. I understand that when they're very young, we were talking psychosomatic, just somatically, there's the stomach aches, the headaches, I don't feel well. And then it starts getting to be a little more, now I'm having trust issues or I'm mm -hmm. having this and that and the other. In your experience, and it's hard because it's a, and I'm thinking, in my opinion, the way I'm looking at it, it's like you've got 20 years you're playing with, but maybe mm -hmm. from three to maybe 15, 16 years of age. Mm -hmm. How do some of these issues then manifest as the children okay. get into adolescent years and, you know, try to figure out who they're going to be as grownups? Because mm -hmm. that's the whole planning process, our, right. our bodies, our brains. Who are we going to be when we grow up? We try to start figuring that out when we're four or five. Mm -hmm. Um, take that any way that you, you know, any, any path you want to take that to, that's, that's what I'm curious about. So it's about. interesting you say that because that's kind of one of the first questions I ask as well too, like in uh, my evaluation is what they want to be when they grow up. Hmm. And uh, another one is if they had three wishes, any three wishes, what would they be or what would they want? 
and it kind of gives me a tool kind of guide like what their what their stressors are so let me give you an example just mm -hmm, just please, to kind yeah. of make mm -hmm. it sense absolutely if I ask the child hey what are your wishes well I really like to eat and I wish we had a home and I wish we had more money so that kind of tells me this the family right environment there. right away right mm -hmm. versus another child might say well I want an iPhone I want an iPad and I want the latest pairs of like Nikes right right so right then I know yeah maybe I can kind of probably guess what the family environments like mm -hmm. and then I just kind of dig into that the the goal thing what they want to be when they grow up some people are pretty kind of like specific like mm -hmm. they might say well I want to be a doctor I want to be a surgeon some people might say well I want to be a welder some people might say well I just don't know I don't know no one's ever become anything no one's ever become anything mm -hmm. boy that's spot on on something right there yeah. Okay. Or I never thought of that. Yeah. And so it just tells me a little bit more of kind of how they've been shaped. And so um, I almost forgot the original question. The original question was just, <laughs> uh, as I am, I'm just mesmerized by this. But again, the, the manifestation, um, again, of how yeah. they're going to become an adult yeah. and what they may picture that as being is what we were talking about mm -hmm. um, and again if you're looking at, it, at children in a similar situation and I think you hit it on the head too if I just want to have you know when I open up the refrigerator that there's food in there when I you know go to bed mm -hmm. that nobody's yelling etc mm -hmm. so that's very different from the iPad the phone etc mm -hmm. um, and here and here's a, a question without therapy without medications and I and I feel like again this is a stigma and has been a stigma for so many years so people just don't talk about things that happened to you when you're a kid that were bad because mm -hmm. I'm embarrassed by it but now people are starting to say you know what it's okay for me to say that this and that and the other happened because if I say it out loud one of the bravest things that you can say is help yeah um, and I want to go there because I feel like that's relatively new still for us to say and I think a lot of it is with children because whatever happens in those magic mm -hmm. five to 15 years, to me that's like the magic sweet spot, mm -hmm. that those, if they're really bad things and they're hidden and they're not talked about, they're not addressed, yeah. they start coming about later. And that's right. where I was trying to go so, with that So question. if you think of mental illness as like a, a medical illness, hypertension or something, if you treat it early, it's not as bad as later on. Right. But if you don't treat it, and you ignore it, then what happens? You've had a whole bunch of cardiologists on your show, I know that. I've watched right. it online, and yeah. some of them talk a lot of stuff, and they need intervention and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of people with mental illness have no idea that they have a mental illness. They, they, don't, they don't know that what they were going through wasn't normal. Absolutely. So they may not know that for decades later. And that's why COVID was so hard, because when they were pulled out of school, Therapy shut down, school shut Dang down, up. no counselors, right. and we've seen a surge in the like the intensity of suicide, the amounts of suicides in youth um, because they didn't know where to go to, and they're stuck in that situation. And um, the completed suicides in kids, um, often the parents are surprised because they had no idea. They didn't know. Yeah. See, that kills me. I have two, I have a 24 year old and an 18 year old, and. Mm. I have to tell you that, you know, they've got, like all of us have issues. And, and I, unfortunately, have known some parents that, that 
one of their children has has taken their own life and it is it's just and it makes me scared as a parent like am i not understanding something or missing something um and dr silsby's i'm gonna i'm gonna just kind of ping pong it back over to you i don't particularly have a follow-up question with that but what i'd like to do is kind of start into ptsd whether it is something that happened you know between, you know when you were very young and or this might be a good time to open up the idea of the fact again that we're Fort Bliss, we're a military town. PTSD I think is often, you think that, you think military. Doesn't necessarily mean it's military. But just the idea of something happened to you way back when. And for the lack of better wording, I just can't get over it. And well, if we can just start down that yeah, path. Let, first of all, because the talk that I gave to the Rotary down mm -hmm. there a while back was combat-related PTSD. There's certainly a great deal of PTSD in children. In fact, I cover his patients sometimes, and I, I see all the PTSD diagnosis. But I, I think it's a misunderstood uh, and often uh, put-aside diagnosis. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about it, especially in the military. The military uh, sort of likes to think, well, just soldier on, just right, suck it up, right. just go on. You don't have anything wrong with you. And, and that's very incorrect. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, we, we have to recognize it for what it is and then try to treat it. Mm -hmm. If we don't, well, we're missing the boat. But I think one interesting thing to go back to uh, predisposition of the, and I've treated maybe 2,000 PTSD soldiers with PTSD, and about, I would say, 70% have had a bad childhood. Mm. They either come from a mm -hmm. disruptive family, mm -hmm. or they've been abused, neglected, uh, sexually assaulted. So they're set up, their nervous system, as, you, as, as Peter was saying, uh, you know, develops these sort of pathways. So they get into combat, which is entirely different than anything anybody's ever experienced. And bang, they don't know how to experience. Right. And so that sets off this chain reaction of this fight or flight response. And then as, you know, they, they go along, it becomes, uh, it takes over, it takes over their life. It, it just repeats itself, repeats mm -hmm. itself, and they have nightmares and flashbacks mm -hmm. and and disassociation and, and and depression and all these things that are associated with it. So there is a predisposition, and, and a lot of it, you were on the right track, and and you and Dr. Sanger are going back to what happens in childhood. Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning, and I don't know if it was when we were already on the air, if it was prior to, with um, in post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I didn't. I didn't give the acronym out correctly earlier, but um, you were saying earlier that talk therapy, combination. What I got from during the when we were on the air, but the talk therapy tends to be super important when it comes to PTSD, Absolutely. along with medications. Absolutely. And I would love for you to expand a little bit on the combination of the two and why is talk therapy so important. I know we talked a little bit about it too, but it's about retraining yourself mm -hmm. or training yourself, unlearning some of the things that you've learned or that you know, sure, yeah. and then retraining. If we can go down that path, since that's our, yeah, our word for the evening. In fact, I guess in my experience with, with treating this many soldiers with, with this problem, 
I find that talk therapy is more important than the medication. Medications don't work quite that well. If they've got a co-occurring disease like depression, and about 50% of them uh, meet the criteria for a major depressive disorder, then you can treat those with, with the antidepressants and so forth. Mm -hmm. But it's a talk therapy, and it's also milieu therapy. When, when these soldiers could get together, and I've got some old army buddies that I call once or twice a week, and, and we lie to each other and so forth. And, <laughs> right. And, uh, but, uh, oh, yeah, I remember when we did that. But, you know, that, that's important. Right. In, in fact, there was a, a program up in Colorado uh, that they would take some veterans out to go fly fishing uh, on the Arkansas River and they would camp out and uh, they'd take about eight of them at a time and they'd sit around the campfire at night and and just talk with each other mm -hmm. and they found that they thought it was the fly fishing that, uh, <laughs> that made them better but it was actually the talk therapy and, and talking with each other. Mm -hmm. And in this type of a situation in, as I'm hearing you I'm thinking the word cohorts so these are individuals that have experienced not necessarily the same situations but similar situations and they are currently also experiencing some issues going forward um, and I and I say group therapy because I think sometimes when you say group therapy it's again you go to the movies and the TV shows and it's like people roll their eyes like oh great I gotta go to group therapy but in what you're saying it matters so much because like attracts like and when mm -hmm. you know someone has gone through something similar to you, it's, it's kind of like that, that bug to a flame. You, you can't help but want to figure out, okay, so you, know, you kind of first discreetly go, well, this kind of happened to you, so how are you doing today? Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Sangra, if you, can, if you can talk a little bit about group therapy, you know, we've talked a little bit about medications, but mm -hmm. talk about people who have experienced similar things and now they're talking to not only a therapist or a psychiatrist, but they're talking about people in their same situations or have dealt with something like this in the past. How mm -hmm. does that help someone? It, it helps them because it first helps them identify they're not alone. That's it. Right? That's it. That's it. So I'm going to say yeah. it out loud over again. It, it helps them identify that they're not alone. They're not the it, lone ranger. Right. And then, and then it also helps them with knowing what other triggers and what happens and what other people have tried to actually kind of stop that kind of sympathetic drive from actually taking over mm -hmm. that fight or flight response. Um, and interesting enough, when, when you look at combat, um, and Dr. Silsby, you can probably stop me if I'm wrong, but what, when you look at combat in a war zone, there's not much PTSD there. Yeah. When you take that individual out of the combat zone, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. and you fly him back home, mm -hmm that's when the PTSD happens. And so with kids, what happens is when they come out of the abusive um, home or, or something that's happened to them at home and you put them into a safe hospital setting. Now a normal, what we might say. Well, well not, not normal, but just kind of a supportive setting mm -hmm. where, where we can support them. And we've got great staff, great nurses, great therapists that are trained, especially just to help children and adults. Um, and they provide them the support and care that they might not have, then that's when you start seeing the symptoms of PTSD. And you're absolutely right. The, you know, the average combat soldier doesn't fight for motherhood and apple pie mm -hmm. in the United States, fights for his buddies. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. what he's there for. 
And yeah. so that's a tight-knit group. There, there was a, a book once written, if you need to read it if you haven't, uh, called The Tribe. Mm -hmm. Everybody looks for a tribe. But a combat unit, I can't tell you how supportive that is, uh, that they support each other, they're there for each other, and, you know, when, when they come the back home, right. they don't have that anymore. Right. Right. And then this starts. And, and there's acute combat reactions, and they're delayed. And PTSD is a delayed combat reaction. Mm -hmm. Acute combat reaction is if there was an explosion right here uh, in the studio, we'd all have an acute mm -hmm. panic reaction. Mm -hmm. And the way they treat that in the service is with an acronym called PIE, Proximity, Expectancy, uh, Immediacy, and Expectancy. So they bring sense. the soldier right. off the front line, give him a hot meal, pat him on the butt, and tell him he's okay, but the expectancy is he's going back to fight yeah. again. So and he, they how usually, does he get that out of his head? He can't. Yeah, and they usually want to. They want to go back to their unit. Yeah. And the faster you normalize any kind of traumatic experience, let's say the explosion, normalizing them, getting them back to their routine, mm -hmm. kind of day-to-day -day functioning, mm -hmm. the less chances that those trauma goes okay. happens. So, um, so what I'm what I'm hearing is the comradeship or camaraderie, as one would say, um, and it is about the shared experiences. When you said, and I and I hate using the word normal because that it, that doesn't even exist, but normal C, what is around you is what you consider to Correct. be normal. And that's, and that's yeah. different for every person. Please expand yes. on that. Yeah, so normal to you isn't my normal to Bingo. me. And that's what we mean when we say normal. Exactly. Yeah. So we are, um, because there's so much going on, we are like a 12-ish <laughs> minute mark. So I want to make sure that what you wanted to talk about this evening, we've talked about and vice versa. You know, okay. I, I want to make sure that Dr. Silsby, is there anything, I know we still have a couple of slides here. We have slide 18 was the brain. That could be going into all kinds of stuff. That could be a whole show in and of itself. Well, we've kind of talked about that. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. I think as far as the combat PTSD goes, I'd like to bring up the fact that uh, when I was in Vietnam, I, I was a flight surgeon. I was assigned to an assault aviation unit. I didn't see any PTSD. I, I saw none of it at all. Now there are a couple reasons for that. Mm -hmm. One is I didn't know what the heck I was looking for. Right. And, and two is that the more highly trained units like aviators and SEALs and special operators, this is what they expect and they're trained for that. And and so it's their normal. This, it's their normal. Interesting. The guys that have the trouble are the guys the cooks and the the guys that aren't expecting mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And maybe they had childhood trauma and so something happens and, and they're the ones who develop the symptoms. Because you know the the body and the brain's designed because you need that sympathetic drive, mm -hmm. the fight or flight response, right, to actually protect you. So it's built there for a reason, right. and it's built to protect you. But when it's too mm -hmm. going on all the time, that's when it kind of impacts functioning. So, and when Dr. Silsby was talking too, when you have, uh, when you said you you take a person out of combat for a minute, you give them a meal, you give them, you know, would you like to go read a book, or you want to go join your guys again? And you said often it's, well, let me go join my guys. Yeah, mm -hmm. my life is at stake, but there's something 
mentally, emotionally, and physically that they need to have that. And uh, Dr. Sangra, I'm going I'm to ask about this. Uh, you were talking, I think it was prior to the show again, uh, but we were talking about young ones, that for whatever the situation is, there is, and feel free to go through a case study, there's isolation, which really has an effect later. Right. There are some situations, we can talk about the immigrant situation here or not, we can talk about other situations where young ones are isolated. They don't have what they consider someone to be their caretaker. Someone needs mm -hmm. to take care of me, I don't have that right now. Okay. Talk a little bit about that, because before the show started, I'm like, oh, that's golden. I really would like to, okay. to speak about that a little bit. So, you know, um, isolation's been huge for, since COVID, right? Right. Um, with the kids being isolated at home, through Zoom, can't see their friends, soccer practice canceled, ballet canceled, music canceled, like everything was canceled, canceled, canceled. All your comrades are gone. Right. All of a sudden. All your peer support, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's huge for kids. Mm -hmm. Their peers are almost as equally, sometimes just a notch ahead about the parents, and that was gone. So isolation drove them into anxiety or depression. And if there's any core morbidities, let's say depression, pre-existing anxiety or anything like that, or medical issues, the chances of them having higher leverage depressions were actually worse. Mm -hmm. um, and suicide rates mm -hmm. kind of corresponded to that. Right. Um, so isolation has been a huge factor. And then they saw, then they did a study. Mm. And they're like, well, let's do a study between depression, anxiety, and isolation. We're and pack animals. I mean, at the end of the day, it's part of our DNA right. as human beings, most of us, not all of us. There's some of us that really like being alone. Not me, though. I like being mm -hmm. a pack animal. <laughs> um, on that note, COVID aside, um, let's talk about some isolation issues that young ones can have and how that would manifest later. Um, we were talking about abuse, and I know that's not pretty to mm -hmm. talk about, but we're talking about mental health. This is a mental health month. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of later issues happen with abuse as a young child. Mm -hmm. um, touch base on that a little bit, because with abuse, I understand there's a lot of isolation there because you're not allowed to talk about this, and if you talk about this, you're in trouble, et cetera, et cetera, and you just become more and more alone. Right. Talk about that and how that really affects a person's life later on. It's so, big. That's a loaded question. It is. Yeah, it, it is. is. Um, it 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 affects everything. I mean, sadly to say, mm -hmm. um, it affects the the way the brain is actually formed as well too, because it can shift. It can change because your your brain is actually changing even as we speak. It's changing. Mm -hmm. It's it's developing, and the brain doesn't fully develop to the age of twenty five, and yeah, and so. With abuse happening, and then when kids, you know, sometimes they start self-medicating with drugs, and not meaning medication, but drugs, illicit drugs, and that can actually destroy the brain, alter the brain, and it can force the brain to a different path, mm -hmm. such as a different dis disorder mm -hmm. versus maybe just depression. Mm -hmm. So then you can start getting to the bipolar, is the psychosis right. and stuff, and then when that brain is fixated on that trauma and dissociativeness and then the self-harm, the suicide, the self-cutting, you start developing patterns mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. aren't healthy. Right. Um, whether you're um, doing it for the first time or whether you're doing it for the thousandth time, it's just unhealthy. And then eventually those unhealthy patterns can lead to even more destructive. And what, what is it that the child or the young person is seeking? Are they seeking relief? Are they seeking disappearance? Are they seeking fitting in? Is it all of the above? The reason I ask this is that 
say it's someone that is in a family of means, we can go to a therapist, and now I'm going to a doctor, and now you know a 10-year-old is being put on antidepressants, on anti-anxieties, mm -hmm. or an 8-year-old is, etc. Um, again, I know it's loaded. I respect that it's loaded. And this is that show that we need to have 10 million times a year. <laughs> but when these medications, you were talking about substance abuse and just substances in general, and children are being put on medications early on, I'm not sure what my question is, but that's something that's like within the last 50 years, prior to that, that wasn't even a thing. Mm -hmm. How is that shaping people, or just what are the trends? Maybe that's the question. What are the trends that you're seeing over the last years that it's just been pretty common to put somebody on like ADHD medication and or anti-anxiety medication and or mm -hmm. anti-depression medication as their children? Okay, so um, there's a couple of different kind of ways I can go with that. Um, in terms of answering the medication question, I'll kind of aim at that first and then I'll kind of backtrack. Okay. So medications have kind of more advanced and we understand the brain a little bit better in terms of like neuroimaging what's going on and actually understanding it. Um, so we developed the medications. They're a little bit more sophisticated than what they were before. Mm -hmm. Before it was just like throw a pill, electric shock, and see what happens. Bingo. And maybe, right. and maybe take, a, take a low boat. Maybe right. let's take a low boat. Cut some of your brain out. Right? You don't need that part anyway. And, and that's what You're they fine. used to do. Right. Exactly. Because exactly. there's no really understanding. Yeah. And if you go back to, I think they have a museum in Pennsylvania or something like that, where they did the first anatomy dissection. Because before, to cut a human being was unheard of. And it, it was almost like not sacred. And mm. don't touch the mm -hmm. human being body or and stuff like that. But since science has advanced or our understanding of the anatomy has advanced, the brain is still, it's the next frontier. In other it words, still is. I agree. in other words, there's so much more we got to learn about it and there's so much more um, understanding. We're still developing or understand microparticles of the brain and neurochemistry and stuff. Let me do that mm -hmm. a, a minute because there was a book recently out called The Brain and uh, the brain is, is mainly adaptable and it can heal itself. Uh, it gives an example of a lady that uh, lost her semicircular canal so she couldn't balance. And they were developed electrodes they put on her in her mouth. Mm -hmm. And it would sort of bubble if you lean forward or not bubble if you lean back. Training her. And it the brain recycled, bypassed the part that was destroyed and she gained her balance back. And, and the brain is just amazing. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so I you know, have two minutes, and I don't want to ask any more questions, but Dr. Sangra, you were going to say something. So go there, because it so, is so, amazing. So the other it's trend scary. that we've seen is, yeah. is social media. Yes, and, and just yes. media itself. The right. transition from media to become more dark, um, almost having like, kind of like pro-suicide, like egging these kids on to actually do it and videotape themselves. Like those are the kind of dark mm. kind of images that I'm talking about. So stress on the family, where they're not home, they're working, they, they don't have time to communicate with the child. And the, the very and stressful the, video games too. I mean, there's right? some really dark video games. Yeah. Sure. And so the child is always looking for acceptance. They, right. They're looking for a right. peer, a peer belonging, something to connect with. Mm -hmm. And if they connect with something that's leading down the, a wrong path, then 
that that could be dangerous. And you're right. I mean, I, I always think to myself, too, every time we do a program like this, I think about the last program. In fact, that's how I do my research. I'm like, okay, when was the last time we did mental health? What were the questions we covered then? And I, as you, as you see, and the audience knows, I take all these notes everywhere, but I take these back with me because a year from now we'll do this exact same show, and it will be a year out of COVID, so we're going to have a complete different conversation of what we've learned mm -hmm. with isolation. That's forced isolation. We didn't want to do that. And that has nothing to do with abuse. But there are going to be a lot of mental issues that result out of this as well. Um, I'm going to wrap it up really quick because if we go into another question, we're going to go over time. But if you uh, had some questions during the show and just didn't catch it because we're too fast, because we're fast often, you can go to pbselpaso.org. There you can go to watch and programs and you will find the El Paso Physicians and you'll be able to watch the show again. We are currently streaming live on YouTube. So YouTube will have this on as well. Just again, PBS El Paso. And then the El Paso County Medical Society that brings the show to you and has for many, many years epcms.com you can go there as well uh, Madeline Morris has been the person that's been sending questions our way and Madeline I thank you so very much and uh, you've been watching again at PBS El Paso with the El Paso Physician and it's mental health month so take care of yourself go take a walk go call someone tell them you love them I'm Katherine Berg this is peak conversations for your peak health the official podcast of peak behavioral health services Edits and production for podcast by Bravo Mike Communications and Las Cruces Today.com.